Once upon a time, in a faraway land. What are fairy stories? The strange and wondrous place where nothing is as it seems. Magic mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest? Fairy is a perilous land. Before she found herself falling down what seemed to be a very deep well. It is the place you visit in your dreams. A world of myth and magic. When the clock began to chime midnight, a mysterious voice began calling to the sad princess. She pricked her finger with her needle. Three drops of blood fell on the In a trance, she followed the haunting sound of a winding tree. stairway to the top of the you tower. You can read along with me in your book. Wait for one night and said the magic words. Let's begin now. Um, Tolkien would say the fairy story or fairy tale are stories about fairy with a capital F, which is the realm of fairy or fairyland. He also calls it the state in which fairies have their being, meaning that it might be a geographical place, but it might be something else as well, such as the Zepteti, some, uh, a, a, another dimension, you could say, where where these stories are taking place. Um, fairy contains many things besides elves and fays, uh, we would say mythical creatures and such, but also mortal men when we are enchanted. Most good fairy stories, he says, are about the adventures of men in the perilous realm, the fairyland, or upon its shadowy marches. Um, but that state of fairy defies description. So the tales that we've received aren't necessarily again, literal accounts, but the way that that state could be expressed most accurately or to give the feeling of the events that happen in the state of fairy, as much as language allows us to describe something that is essentially undescribable. Just like the so-called mysteries, right? Right. Because in, in religion, we say, oh, so what are the mysteries and you will never, or only a few can see the mysteries or be part of the mysteries or recognize the mysteries. I I think it's out there. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really out there because my mysteries with my goddess are not your mysteries with your goddess. They're different. And is that the realm of fairy? What's funny, uh, Dave and I were speaking earlier, but what's, should be mentioned, maybe I should have mentioned already, um, but it may be unusual that we are discuss even discussing Tolkien right here on a Witchcraft podcast, but um, he was a devout Christian and specifically a devout Catholic. But even in these concepts, we already see that there is other understandings and ideas being expressed. And mm -hmm. and although some of the things he's writing about, uh, of course, have nothing to do with, with what we're doing here with witchcraft, I do think it brings up topics that will guide us to a productive discussion of the craft. He says fairy stories often have, uh, or uh, fairy stories as a whole have three faces, a mystical aspect that points to the supernatural. And I think by that, he means the sacred, um, the magical towards nature for us also sacred and the mirror of scorn and pity towards man. 
the essential face of fairy is the middle, the magical towards nature. But the degree in which the others appear is variable and can be decided in the act by the storyteller. Uh, fairy itself is most easily described, he says, by magic. Magic itself is closest to conveying what fairy is. And I think we see that um, both in, in, in the Celtic term and, and the Nordic term where, I, where I, troll is often ascribed to, to things that are otherworldly or more than human. And sometimes even witches and wizards are described as troll besides just the physical being of a troll. Um, so he is in line with this, with our beliefs in magic. Um, and not only do fairy tales tell of magic and enchantment, but the act of telling them is an enchantment. And uh, this part becomes a very exciting part for me. <laughs> yeah. This, and, and what I, uh, a note I took at that point was the storyteller being like the witch in our last tale, Hansel and Gretel. Because the storyteller has to take the elements that he's already familiar with. And actually, T Tolkien goes into, into detail about that, such as like taking sun from the sun in the sky and taking green from grass. And then now the storyteller can make a green, a green sun. And I pointed out in, in our last discussion about the, the, the witch taking pure specific elements, but recombining them to make uh, something that is mixed, a new creation. Um, a house of bread and cake and, and either only a witch or a storyteller could come up with the house of bread and cake in this idea. And these, another word for a storyteller is a spinner of yarn, which not only brings us the ideas of spell casting, but all the way back to the sisters of weird and the Norn and these magical beings. And how are you going to spin your story? <laughs> yes, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. The storyteller becoming the magic itself. In our traditions, indigenous traditions, most of the medicine people are storytellers. And the story is itself the medicine. And my excuse, no, it's also real sometimes, of not writing as much as I should have been writing in my life. It's, I come from an oral tradition. Our traditions are oral traditions and there's no need for academic proof that you know the story because it's even in modern times, you know, it's not just the story, but how you tell the story, how you enchant the people. And humbly me being a terror reader and, uh, spiritual counselor, I don't think that a lot of times is what I'm actually telling the people, but the, the emotion that is behind my words, you know, uh, in most cases like empowerment and compassion also, but, uh, love and reassurance that things are going to pass and they're going to be okay. And I don't know, this, this really touched my heart that the act of telling the, the tale is you become the enchantress at that moment. Like that is pretty neat. Looking back into native peoples, that that is the art of healing. It's done the story. Mm -hmm. 
And I love the the spinning the yarn. Um, and we always talk about weaving magic together. Um, and when we and and if you think about it, even in spell casting, we're weaving things together. We're 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 spinning that magic into something concrete, something that, um, just like with the fairy stories. I mean, when I think back to to my parents reading those to me as a child, I can get lost in the magic because it's like you said, we become the enchanter, the enchantress. As we read, as we, as we relay those things. And, and even the indigenous, I spent a summer on a, a Lakota reservation, Laura, and to hear the elders just speak the stories out and to feel the magic behind them. And it's like you said, it's the way that it's said. And the minute that it, it, it just flowed out of their mouth, you could feel that power. And you could feel the the touch of the spirit. You could feel everything magical that could envelop you in that. And that's one of the things I strive for. When I teach, when I when I write, I want people to feel the magic in there. I want to be able to weave that. I want to enchant the words. And as the weaver of that magic, that yarn, that fate, he also brings up the idea of subcreation. And he is giving the argument of subcreation as a worthy reason to be to be writing fantasy and fairy stories. But the way he describes his subcreation, it's something you could apply to any true artist. And he even compares it to the art and work of the elves of his own stories. Subcreation, of course, is analogous, I think, to what we do in our magical work as well, and gives a great argument for considering it an art, even an art more than a science, but an act of continual sacred creation. Again, here we see that he's playing with ideas that are that are heretical, but they're beyond the average idea of of, of mainstream Catholicism. Um, his his most uh, he writes the most single important hallmark of enchantment is wonder, and wonder he says is distinct from will. And that's the only time I've heard that. And I think that's uh, worth noticing as well. But we're jumping back to this concept of, of the importance of wonder in a disenchanted age or, as a dis or at a disenchanted age even. But we hear so much about, about intent and will. And this made me think about the fact about wonder being distinct from it and being able to receive as opposed to only dominate or or emanate or send out uh any any thoughts yeah. there or should i mm -hmm. oh have mercy <laughs> i think that that's such a big part 
of, oh my gosh, I've looked at so many practitioners who seem to be just downtrodden in today's times. And there's that part of me, and this is part of one of the courses that I teach. What made you fall in love with magic to begin with? What brought that passion to start? What stirred that wonder in you? Because without that wonder, it becomes mechanical. I can go and do the most elaborate ritual you've ever seen. But I think without that wonder, it's essentially just words. If I don't allow the wonder and the the enchantment to just permeate every fiber of my being and my practice, there's an old Bible verse, I become like a clanging gong or cymbals. All I'm doing is making noise. But you add that wonder to it, and that's when I can close my eyes and I can see, I can visualize the sparks, the rainbows, anything that you want to think about. Even the darker parts, I can see it all. But that's all because of that wonder. So that's my two cents on that. What about you, Laura? Oh, my God. Uh, Going back to to being childlike and to have that childlike wonder, obviously. Uh, the, the belief that my great friend Christian told me this phrase that I will never forget, you know, cuando lo crees, lo crees. If you believe, you create it. It's not if you will, you create it. Mm-hmm. It's if you believe, right? And in order to believe something, you have to wonder. And and we tend to always think or wonder towards negative stuff. You know, it's not going to work. It's going to be, I'm going to fail. I'm going to say something stupid. You know, but what if you don't? What if you allow yourself to wonder and to believe and to have faith that it's going to be okay? That, that you're going to say something really smart, actually. And I think you have to be a little bit fearless, you know, kind of like a little bit of a daredevil, if you will, to say, I'm going to do my active magic. And if you have tools of the trade and you want to have your super fancy tools, go for it. But sometimes all you need is your, your finger and your will, part of me, your wonder. And... And to have that childlike, um, to be open as a child to, I don't know what's going to come up with it, but it's, but something is, um, and I digress with something that was said earlier when you were saying, uh, Aaron, about us in ritual parting away from logos. That's what happened when you're going down to that ritual, right? You're you're just feeling and separating from logos. And at that moment, you're not thinking. So my very first mentor used to say, if you have the best tools, if you have the best time, if you have all the um, 
correspondences and the planetary hours and blah, blah, blah. And if you sit there and you say, oh, I hope this works. Stop. Just don't even waste the time. You know, you, you separate from Logos, you start dancing, singing or whatever it is that you're going to do. And then you go deep and deep and deep into that connection. And that is what the spark flies. And, and then the magic is done. If, if you believe in that, that's when the magic is done. And then the whole releasing of the energy and the eating of the cakes or whatever else do you do after you raise the energy, the so-called term of raising the energy, that is all icing on the cake. In my opinion, the work is done. The moment you, you find yourself in the ecstasy of the moment of having raised the energy, because you're not thinking. You're just having fun. And I don't know you guys, but in my rituals or when I'm facilitating or when I'm doing stuff on my own, I'm usually laughing. I mean, I mean, there's always something that makes me laugh. You know, I'm either moving too fast and can't catch my breath or I almost trip or I said the wrong word or, you know, and I'm just laughing. And I think that's wonderful. I was saying, I love that you talked about that childlike faith, so to speak. I've got six nephews and one niece, and I want to see them hold on to that belief in magic as long as they can. I'm not going to be the one that says there's no this or there's no that. I'm going to be the one that says, what can we do to get ready for this one? And I think that that's part of what we have to do as witches, as magicians. We have to build that wonder in each other. Because think about it. Sometimes we lose our way, just like Hansel and Gretel. And we don't have it in us anymore. The time that I spent in the hospital, I felt as weak as water. I didn't feel any more magical than a stick. But. It was when others came around me to help stir that wonder again. I mean, and I'll do. The, I'll even give you this example. My roommate didn't have a reason to, but he put the Christmas tree up by himself. And that, to me, was a part of stirring that wonder. He knows how much I like looking at the lights. But it, it was part of what he did to build magic in somebody. I don't uh, I don't downplay the importance of will and magic, nor concepts such as planetary hours. I, I in fact like them a lot. But um, but I will work without them as well. My one of my teachers, Jack Grail, he often will just come back to come back to do the work. And sometimes when life gets in the way, I hear that in my head and I go, oh, fuck, okay. You know, and I might not have all the elements right, but you just do the work. Um, the What I do see uh, sometimes just as comments from strangers online or sometimes things that I hear from people that we are very close friends with, it's the intent that matters. And... In my mind, I always think the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And 
meaning not like in the good way, like not, Hey, we're going to party in hell. Like the outcome that you are expecting is not necessarily the outcome that is going to happen because of intent alone. There are other forces working in this cosmos besides you, and it will behoove you to work in collaboration with other forces than think that your personal intent is going to overcome all the obstacles. And, you know, without being, uh, okay, think before you open your mouth or sometimes the intention is very, very strong, but the answer is no. From whoever forces out their God, God is Buddha, Krishna, Jesus, whatever. Your intent could be wonderful. Your answer is still going to be no. And for a reason, and again, not minimizing with this toxic, positive uh, thought of everything happened for a reason. No. Sometimes there are reasons for why things happen or not happen. And your intent could be wonderful and magnificent. And they're watching over you and they're like, nope, not today. You're not going to get it. And you can come here and dance your fancy dances and have all your intentions and your tools and your magical correspondences. And mom and dad are still going to say, nope, not today. You know? And that's part of the magic, I think. That's part of the... Mm -hmm. <laughs> to to be very on your on your nose it makes you wonder <laughs> that's part of having why, right that's part of believing in the sacredness of nature and the insultness of other beings besides ourself that yep. other forces come into play yep. mm -hmm. <laughs> so tolkien gives us uh further arguments for, oh, wait, before I go into that. So continuing with this idea of, of egos, what I'll say, ego-centeredness in the craft, um, the examples that Tolkien shows of, of sub-creation remind me of the idea of, say, Michelangelo or da Vinci sculpting and they're not putting their dominion on what this sculpture is going to be, but working with the substance to bring out the full potential of what that substance wants to be. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I wish I could source this, but I know I've heard a quote about bringing out what the, what the stone wants to be when making a mm -hmm. stone sculpture. Right. And that, we see that, especially in, in the film representations of, of Lord of the Rings, we see that as the elven craft where, where Lothlorien, especially our river or, um, Rivendell are built in conjunction with their natural setting that they are inhabiting as opposed to altering beyond perception, the nature around them. And I think that gives us, I think that gives us instruction too, in our role as sub creators and magicians in working with these forces in collaboration with them, as opposed to attempting to dominate them. 
Mm-hmm. Of course, unless that is your spiritual path. That does exist too. So he gives us he gives us his reasons for fairy stories, which begin with recovery. And I would continue that idea with being recovering of wonder and enchantment. And the magic and nobility that already is present in the world around us for us to collaborate with that, those magic forces. He says, by the forging of Graham, cold iron was revealed. By the making of Pegasus, horses were ennobled. In the trees of the sun and moon, root and stalk, flower and fruit are manifested in glory. And I think he's poetically describing how by connecting the elements in nature around us with their mythic res- representations, we do just bring out their full magical and mythical potentials. And we can see, we can work with those. He addresses escapism as well. He says, this is one of the functions of fairy stories and it's not a negative connotation. I get the idea of the escapism is from the iron cage of modernity that we spoke about earlier Uh and mythos coming to help us break out of that cage, evoking Hansel enclosed in his cage and Gretel, the mythos setting him free. And through this escapism, we can reclaim our right as imaginative co-creators. And finally, uh, consolation is his last argument for fairy stories. One aspect is that it gives us a distanced, a distanced view, but also in here, he talks about the eucatastrophe, which is a, a word I believe he makes up, uh, meaning the happy ending or the just ending in him, you catastrophe actually is him saying the, the, the happy catastrophe, you know, and, and drawing a distinction from say in Greek myths, they usually ended in some form of tragedy. So hyacinth becomes a flower. He doesn't go off and live happily ever after. Um, but in fairy tales, they usually do. And if not happy, at least just. Laura, you were just speaking about being able to believe in the outcome of your magic without doubt in the moment. And I believe this speaks to that. Absolutely. And not only that, but uh, again, with my psychological desire of being a psychologist, um, in therapy, I have learned, thank you to my wonderful therapists, that it's not about what actually happens. It's not about the circumstances. It's not about everybody around you. It's about the final story that you tell yourself. So when this catastrophic things happens on, on one's life, I'm talking real life now. Mm-hmm. And, and you go to your therapist or your priest or your magi or whoever you go to, and you 
vomit words and and then you ground the idea and you frame it. It's not about what happened, but your life continues depending on the story that you tell yourself. How are you the hero on your own story? You know? And then the consolation that you talk about, right? Uh, the distance in perspective. How that happened, and it affected me at the moment, but right now I'm telling myself, this is the story. This is the, the, the golden thread that I get out of the story, me being the alchemist with the ish that happened. Now I have this golden thread because I transform it, you know. And that's why for me, psychology and magic and, and the mind, uh, not necessarily by the logos, but the Jungian idea of the spirit, um, helps us, you know, and, and it helps us escape from a mindset in which whatever happens has to be horrible and it changes our life forever. Uh, it could change it for the good, you know. Uh, I cannot change the world, but I will change my world, mm -hmm. you know. And I think that's part of the wonder and the that Tolkien is about, you know, without using those words, obviously. Definitely. And being able to take ourselves outside the center of the story at times. Yep. Right. It, it, of course, we are the author of our own stories, but there's so much here that goes against ego, uh, uh, egocentricism and, and it, uh, in, in his words, uh, uh, human will, um, and dominion, domination, but being able to see our function in a larger picture, or if not, maybe, maybe that actually is a little too religious of a way of putting it, but seeing us in relation to the natural world around us and, yeah, and the beings that inhabit the nature around us. Exactly. Because 99% of the time when we are going through fill the blank in our life, we suffer more when we say, they did this to me, they acted this way towards me, they blah, blah, to me, when we are centered. And when we realize, like, you know what, this person did what they did, and I'm probably not even on their radar, or they did something, and the consequence of what they did, they did affect me, but they didn't do that thing because of me. So it really is like removing yourself from the narrative completely in order to heal, understanding that they also have their own path. And the 99% of the times it has nothing to do with you and it's just about their own reactions, trauma, etc. And and you're absolutely right, you know, that is the that ego disconnect to not be the center, but rather like just a mere spectator like everybody else and and we're all the villain in somebody else's story anyway, so yeah. Right. I think that's actually that the, we're getting at one of the downside of, say, a grim fairy tale where we're, we become so focused in our own grievances and we want that just ending where our tormentors are punished. But 
in re you know in real life are we going to be happy focusing on our own grievances and all the new grievances that are happening every moment or being able to recenter the story at times when needed outside of our you know our own pain really but our own mm -hmm. our own existence and i'm a i'm a fan of the magic circle like the ceremonial magic magic circle and in the magic circle i'm the center of my universe and i'm directing energy where it needs to go however in certain acts of witchcraft maybe that is not the path of least resistance perhaps it is working again in collaboration with the natural world and forces around me and sometimes even in my magic circle where i can be directing that but i don't have to be doing it at odds with my surroundings mm -hmm. so we've been bringing in some larger larger topics already but I think we're going to be getting into them really specifically with the question we have from a listener, which is how do we reconcile these stories with the nationalists and otherwise gross ideas that filled their transition from oral stories to written ones? And my first response uh, would be that uh, these were recorded in, in the late 18th century, early 19th century. Um, but in the ongoing uh, passion of romanticism that was happening, which predates a little bit the fervor of nationalism. And the romanticism was inspiring artists to look at nature and the uncontrollable forces around them at the same time say that mary shelley wrote frankenstein um and to the heritage of the wisdom revitalizing their cultural heritages which uh which i don't have personally have a problem with um we're not yet getting to associating that with an imperialist idea in 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 my understanding um but one of the other responses I would have is, is I, I'm trying to return to, in some ways, the earliest version of the text. And now, when I say that, I'm not necessarily going past grim if we're focusing on a specifically grim fairy tale. Some of them do have uh, similarities that uh, predate it by hundreds of years in, in, say, Italian fairy tales. But I am going to the at least earliest edition, and at some and at uh, in some instances the notebooks that have been published for Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm, and then when we expand from that, we probably will also look at older Italian and French fairy tales and so on. Um, but knowing how these stories were applied with nationalist ideas also gives us the lens that we can work view and work with them such as I, I mentioned in the last episode that jack sipes talks about them being uh, uh co-opted by the culture industry and when we're cognizant that they've been co-opted we can use that to temper our readings of them and the next step we can queer them in a way, uh, um, a different take than say the a postmodernist reading where we need to rewrite it completely. But 
we can queer it in our understanding and our analysis, not only of the heteronormative assumptions, but of the social, historical, and political influences that they've been co-opted by. My thought, though, in that area, too, is don't we automatically do that as we read? Don't we automatically put put it into a situation that works with our own psyche and our own self. Um, as we're reading the fairy tales, even even as they've they've taken on new life through centuries, um, as I read it now, I still find myself putting myself into the story as I am now. Um. And that that means all of me, all the gay, all the everything. Um, just so I've got that application, and and again it goes back to the applying the wonder, if that makes sense at all. What I just said. It, it does. I don't. I don't think that everybody does read that way, which is why I'm glad you you state it, and that our purpose is to being able to look at these with an open mind and with a sense of wonder. Did you want to jump in, Laura, or not yet? I'm just thinking similar to you, and I don't think everybody will read that way. And as I'm listening to you, they've saying all of this, I'm like, yeah, but when I was reading the Hansel and Gretel, I only saw myself from the feminine characters. As queer as I am, I, it never crossed my mind, literally never crossed my mind to see myself as a father or Hansel. And that is very gender bias. Again, a bias that I didn't know it was in my head until just now. Thank you, Dave. Uh, you know, and you, thank you for mentioning that because that will open my mind to the next tales. Which, by the way, I want to say the disclaimer to people. If sometimes I sound very oblivious, is because I didn't grow up reading English fairy tales, so a lot of these stories are new to me, especially when we go back to the older versions, because I know all the Disney, obviously, uh, and even those are translate with Latin jokes and, and you know to make them fit the narrative of where I grew up, which is Mexico. Mm-hmm. So, hmm. Lots of different perspectives and, and views for these tales. Yeah, when we discussed Hansel and Gretel, we began to unfold how it could even be looked at as a form of creation myth in some ways. And thinking of that or thinking of them just as proto-mythology, these are all archetypes and essences then that we carry within us as one individual, all the characters manifest energies that we carry within us or or could carry within us. I, I'm, I'm glad you bring up the cultural aspects, uh, Laura, and especially Disney. These tales have been so co-opted by the commercial sector and including, you know, modern media and Disney that they've become, uh, I would say, uh, one, at least known of by by most most people become part of the cultural heritage of 
you know, modern culture in general, because they've been so co-opted. And with that, I'd like to point out something I wrote a little bit about, but like for me, this is an opportunity to look at a mythology that is not um, that is not Old Testament or Christian Bible based. Mm-hmm. It's also not specifically Greco-Roman or Egyptian, and I would invite people to look at it as an opportunity in that sense, as a way to decolonize your craft, where you're not taking something from say an African myth or, a, or in general, a, uh, a culture that maybe you are not connected with. These have become so widespread and commercialized and just in general, cult, uh, uh, culturally common that there's something that we all have some familiar, some familiarity with. You cannot appropriate the dominant culture. That's that's in a nutshell. So um, I have heard of this when I talk about Krampus. And I think that's when we talk about it. Uh, Krampus comes from the Alpine mountains. It's more, mostly uh, uh, Austria and uh, Germany. And I fall in love with Krampus. And I love Krampus. We have to do a Krampus show. Um, and then I've heard of people talking about how come that is not cultural appropriation? You cannot appropriate a cultural, uh, a dominant culture, period. That is not up for discussion. Um, there is a thing about assimilation. By now, it's not forced anymore as much. Uh, speaking from my privilege of living in the United States, uh, probably there are other places where assimilation is still forced and I am unaware of. With that said, um, if you are not making profit out of learning this culture and you take the gold that emanates from that culture and embrace it and celebrate it and educate yourself, is not a colonizing experience. Whereas in the other way around, if you like cocoa and want to celebrate Day of the Dead, but spew and dislike Mexican immigrants, they, then you are a hypocrite who is a culture vulture. Does that answer your question? <laughs> I think so. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank for you. That. I love and that culture you, vulture. What, <laughs> what do you, uh, what interests you specifically then about the fairy tales? If you, if you have an answer to that. Um, well, growing up, um, woman, right. It's, uh, it's, it's the magic. It was the magic. Uh, first when I was a lot younger, obviously, is the magic of becoming a princess and living in a castle and happily ever after, right? But as I grew older, I and I'm not kidding here, always identifying more with the witch or, or the villain or the one conjuring the magic and putting the spells on. And I never knew 
why I was so called to the villain or the outcast until I understood that I am by geopolitical, etc., a so-called minority. And it makes total sense that I identify more with the oppressed or the villain than with the dominant culture. And then uh, about 15 years ago, I was introduced um, to fairy tales under more pure um, versions, if you will, um, and using those for healing, you know, by Christian Ortiz with, with his uh, podcast, Saber Sanar for You, who speaks Spanish, um, and finding all the metaphors and all the allegories and how those apply through a lens of uh, anthropology and psychology to heal. So the majority of them to heal and some of them as cautionary tales and how they apply to right here, right now, modern times. So being a folk magic practitioner with all the folk stories that are in and of themselves a way of fairy tales or mythos, uh, there, there is such wisdom with oral tradition in my opinion, oh my God, the academics are going to come down to me. Um, I think there's more wisdom in our traditions than there is in academia. There I said it. I'm not going to apologize. And of course, no one is forced to work with fairy tales. or We're not making the case that that is the only form of witchcraft, sacred lore. Um, if you happen to be listening to this and do not identify with or, or do not resonate with European fairy tales. These concepts of sacred reading and the myth ritual theory could be applied to the folk tales and uh, mythology from whatever culture that that you feel your her uh, your heritage connection to. And even to modern fiction, uh, George Luis Borges or Jorge Luis Borges and Toni Morrison are both authors that I think could uh, benefit uh, could benefit us from a sacred reading context. And Dave, would you give us uh, more information about how we would apply sacred reading practices to these works? Sure. Um, my background, again, was with the, uh, the church. So we did a lot of the divine reading, so to speak. Um, and there are four principles there. One is read, meditate, prayer, and contemplate. All four of those can be applied to the fairy tale. So let's start with the reading. And when I say reading, I don't mean just going through the words. When I read a story, I read a story. I put myself into that story. And while I'm in there reading, it gives me a chance to experience that, those words as the, her the heroine or hero would experience the story, even the villain. Um, the second step, meditate. Most people are like, oh, should I read the whole story, then meditate? Should I do that? Do it the way you want to do it. 
if you need to read a paragraph at a time, meditate on that. Do that. If you need to do it a chapter at a time, do it that way. There's no prescribed way of doing a divine reading. The next is pray. Take that any way you can. You can apply that to your practice. You can, if you need to, speak with your God, your goddess, your deity. Um, it, for me, the best place for me to do this is in nature. If I'm going to read, I love to read next to a tree and absorb those energies. Again, let the wonder take place. And then the last one is to contemplate. This one for me is more of how can I apply this? What does it mean to me? So it's just like, and we've talked about this before, Aaron. I love fairy tales. Just always had such a love and a passion for fairy tales. And one of my favorites is Snow White. Yeah, a big guy from the South is able to put himself into the shoes of Snow White, the evil queen, all the little dwarves, everybody in that story. But there's something I can glean from every part of that. And if I apply the reading, the meditating, the praying, and the contemplation, I can pull something from any reading and make it magical. Just within, just like we, when we discussed Hansel and Gretel last time, there was something in there that each one of us could take away. It's all about the interpretation. If you read just to read, that's all you're going to get out of it. But for me, it's an adventure. When I read, I want to be a part of that magic. I want to feel the energy of the forest creatures. I want to feel that fear and the courage at the same time of the hero or heroine. Fear and courage go hand in hand. Courage isn't the lack of fear. Courage is what you do with it. So in the divine reading of any fairy tale there's parts of it we can apply to our own magic and that I think is all a part of the mythos, the wonder the enchantment and it's like I was talking about earlier, allowing ourselves to feel that passion and that magic all over again and being able to understand what applies to me in this? How can I use this in my craft? This is no different than Sunday School 101. It's about how can I take this writing? How can I weave it together so that it becomes relevant to what I practice? to what I use. Magic doesn't have to be about all the fancy tools like Laura said. It's about what you do with what you're given.
uh, uh, author and magician Jason Miller, I, I was surprised to read, but writes about reading and then contemplating how these can be applied to your head, your heart, and your hand. Mm -hmm. And I, I liked that as well. I, yeah, instead of say various soul levels or, or again, something that harkens back to a specific organized religious tradition, I liked the idea of, of head, heart, and hand. Um, and I imagine this can all be done through, through listening like audiobook as mm -hmm. well. Oh yes. And, um, Laura, you mentioned identifying with with the villains in the story. And I think that's uh, something many of us can, can identify with as well. And in fact, there's been, there's been queer studies with like us as not only as witches, but as, as queer people often identifying with the Disney villains mm -hmm. and making them, you know, honorary gay icons. And didn't I, didn't I watch Maleficent with you at the movie theater? We did not, but I was eager to hear after I saw it, I, I, I was eager to hear your thoughts, but as a feminist, I was eager to hear your thoughts. Another episode. Yeah. I cannot believe I'm going to say this, but I was so mad first. And then when I thought about it later, I loved it. I was mad that she saved the kid, but that's another story. Um, and, and you know what, I, I, I love the Disney versions of most of the fairy tales as well. And I think there's things that we can get out of those, um, adaptions as well. And, you know, we'll mm -hmm. probably get into that when we get to some of those stories. I can't believe it, but I think we're at the end of the line. Um, how much do you want to say? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Uh, Dave, what, what would you like to tell us before we close out tonight? Just look for the wonder. That's all. Just look for the wonder. Let it permeate your very being. And how about, do you have any personal uh, notices or information to share with us before we close out? Um, I am looking at releasing the first course, Poking the Sleeping Line, Rebuilding the Passion in Your Craft, um, March 1st. Um, March 1st is going to be the hard release for Poking the Sleeping Line. I'm looking forward to that eagerly. And Laura, what would you like to tell us before we end the call tonight? Um, look for my online classes. I'm doing a series for the whole year of 2023 on spells. And uh, January was candle spells. February is going to be love spells. Uh, March is going to be cleansing spells and so on and so forth. Uh, you can follow my link tree. Go to link tree and find Magia Serati. This is M-A-G-I-A-C-E-R-A-T-I. <gasps> I can't believe I spell it all right. Um, and you can subscribe to my, to my uh, link tree and get... All the notices. I also do, of course, work. I'm a witch for hire, so find me uh, on Calendly as calendly.com slash Laura, and follow my all other podcasts and presentations, etc., etc. I'm findable everywhere, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, etc. 
Thank you. The other the other night I was listening to a playlist and it was the the best songs in Spanish for every year from like 78 till 90 something. But I swear every second song was Soda Stereo or Serati. And <laughs> and I thought to myself, I think Laura made this playlist. This is biased. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. <laughs> and um, uh, I, Freighter Aaron, and the good Reverend Laura Gonzalez will be with Chris Allen on his channel, Mystic Chat, I believe February 9th, talking about love. And until our next gathering, when shall we three meet again? When we three shall meet again, may your travels in fairy be full of wonder. <laughs>